Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Time to turn to the U.S. economy and what we can read out of its performance in terms of investments. Joining us is Gary Schilling. He is the president of A. Gary Schilling and Company. He is also a Bloomberg View profiting columnist. And uh, Gary, always a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, I wonder if you could just give us your thoughts based on today's payroll report, non-farm payroll report. And uh, are you still positioning yourself as long U.S. treasuries? As a matter of fact, we've, we've stepped up our position in the last several weeks in the portfolios we manage. Uh, I think we're in a situation here where payrolls are, are growing, but rather modestly, nothing really uh, to get excited about, nothing that's going to change the Fed's view of the world. And, of course, there's a big difference between what the Fed does on the short end of the curve and where you get out into the 10-year and even more so, as you know, Pim, the 30-year that I like. The spillover is very limited when you get out there and you, you've got a lot of deflationary forces, safe haven effects. You look at what's happening just today here with the latest turmoil on the, uh, on the trade front, and where do people go? They go to treasuries, uh, business as usual. So, uh, Gary, uh, so it sounds like you are currently out there buying uh, 30-year treasuries on a day like today. I'm just wondering, how overweight are you and where do you see the yield ending up? Because right now I'm looking at a 3% yield on 30-year treasuries. Where's it going? Well, I'm on record as uh, as saying I think it'll go to it'll go to two percent, and and you stand by and that. It's really, it's really the, the the fact that I, again I think we're in a, a world of a lot of deflationary forces, and you know protectionism ultimately is def- deflationary to the extent that it slows economic growth. Although we're in a kabuki dance right now, posturing more than anything else. Uh, but but again, uh, the safe haven effect, and you know one other thing, the Chinese uh, people worry about their dumping treasuries. Uh, but they're on record as saying that they are not going to change their, their policy. And obviously, if they started to sell treasuries, uh, they would tank. And who would be the big losers? The Chinese, because then the rest of their portfolio would be vastly uh, reduced. So um, I, I think, again, the safe haven effect and deflationary forces. So I think we go to 2 And if we go to 2%, if we go to 2% from here in one year, you'll make 30% on a 30-year coupon treasury and 33% on a zero uh, coupon treasury 30 year. Tell us about your thoughts on the outlook for commodity prices and specifically oil. Well, oil, oil, obviously we're facing OPEC, which is trying desperately to do what they what they uh, have had to do traditionally, which is to be the swing producer to cut back to accommodate everybody else who wants a bigger share of the market, the American frackers in particular. Uh, they did that for 10 years. In November of, of uh, 2014, they said enough is enough. They flooded the market. They went from 30 million barrels a day to 33.8 million uh, almost overnight. They wanted to squeeze out the frackers. Uh, frackers play a glorified game of chicken, and who turned out to be the chicken? It's OPEC. So they're, they're trying to cut back. But the point is that the frackers are very resilient, and they're producing now. We're now looking at, I think, uh, 10.4 million barrels a day U.S. production. That's up about half half a, a million barrels uh, from a year ago. And, 
Yeah, I think there is a, there is a range on this, but I, I think the, the the pressure is is down on oil prices. And the point is that the longer OPEC goes, and they've got Russia and other countries with them, of course, but the longer that goes, the tougher it is to maintain discipline, because they have huge budget deficits they're trying to fill. They want higher prices in order to get the revenues to do that in Saudi Arabia, uh, Iran, Libya, you name it. Uh, and the point is that uh, at, at some point, somebody's going to say enough is enough. Uh, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to sell more because I desperately need the revenues. Gary, it sounds like you're pretty bearish, actually, relative to other people. What would what would you have to see to, to sort of say to yourself, you're not bearish on treasuries, right? You're not bearish on this traditional haven asset. Uh, I have been since 1981 when I said we're entering the bond rally of a lifetime and the yield on the 30-year bond was uh, was 12.6% at that point. Yeah, but right now there's something else driving it. And I wanted to ask you, what would you have to see to think, huh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the U.S. economy is doing better than I think. You'd have to, it, it isn't just the economy doing better. The, the link with Treasury yields is very clearly inflation. There's about a 60% correlation between long-term Treasury yields and, and inflation. And it would really take something that would dramatically increase inflation. Now, historically, that's been wars, uh, periods when government spending vastly exceeds revenues on top of a fully employed economy, and the economy uh, is strained. You get inflation. The last time we had that, of course, was uh, with the Great Society and Vietnam spending back-to-back in the late 60s and, and early 70s. Uh, could that be created again? Sure. I mean, if Congress and the administration really go hog wild in terms of, of uh, infrastructure spending and military spending, there's a lot of pressure to do so because voters are mad as hell. There hasn't been any growth in, in uh, real incomes for most people in over a decade. That could do it. But that's, that's uh, in a longer, in a, in a more fundamental standpoint, you've got to see inflation. And, and otherwise, we're in an excess supply world. I mean, that's why Trump's got the upper hand on the, uh, with the Chinese. In an, upper, in, a, in an excess supply world, uh, who's got the upper hand? It's the buyer, not the seller. Gary, you mentioned military spending. What do you think about investing in aerospace and defense companies? Uh, we are. In portfolios we manage, we, we do have positions in the aerospace and defense area. Have you been increasing them? No, no, right. we've held them steady. But we have we have a we have an extraordinary amount of cash. I mean, having said that, you know, we're in, we're in treasuries, we're aerospace, uh, but we're 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 really very heavy on cash because you've you've had so much more volatility. And I think this this long bull market in stocks that started in March of of uh, of uh, two thousand nine, yeah. uh, you know, very steady. It obviously spawned a lot of a lot of uh, excess risk taking because interest rates were low and people thought they deserved more, and they they uh, took advantage of low volatility. The big play with VIX, yeah. but of course that really started to come unglued in early February uh, when we saw the the VIX uh, take off and and uh, stocks uh, plummet and so on. Yeah. Uh, but it's a very tricky world right now because you haven't seen the usual massive run for either treasuries or gold. Right, which would normally would be the, the haven type of trade. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Gary Schilling, president of A. Gary Schilling & Company, also Bloomberg View profit and columnist.
how do trade disputes figure into the value of investments in China? Here to help us understand this is Brendan Ahern. He is the chief investment officer of Crane Shares, and he joins us now. Uh, Brendan, um, maybe you could just describe sort of what has happened in the Chinese stock market. What has been the reaction uh, to trade tariffs and trade potential trade wars between the United States and China? Yeah, uh, you know, the Shanghai and Shenzhen markets, Pam, have been closed for uh, my, my, my favorite Chinese holiday, tomb sweeping, uh, both Thursday and, and today on Friday. Hong Kong was open today, um, and I think most investors would be surprised the, the Hang Seng actually gained uh, just over 1%, um, and this was obviously included the post-market close uh, comments from uh, President Trump. So, so actually, the, the Hong Kong market took it in stride. You know, Brendan, you could argue that the U.S. market is as well. A lot of people who I speak to anyway, uh, they just tell us, you know what? This is just a war of words. This is chess beating. This is part of the art of the deal. We're not paying attention. Should they? Yeah, I mean, I, I think ultimately there's there's so much at risk for, for both countries around further escalation that uh, we certainly hope that this war of words is simply a part of that negotiating tactic. Uh, certainly, there's just so much at stake that uh, to to unravel um, you know, the great progress that's been made, it would be a real, real, real shame and really would have a uh, disastrous effect for, for arguably uh, both parties. Brendan, just looking at the shares of Alibaba Group as a proxy, down about 1.5% so far this year. Is Alibaba perhaps uh, indicative of what we can expect? In other words, would you be watching those shares for any reaction based on these trade negotiations? I think it's interesting that the the U.S. listed Chinese companies that that we hold within our our K Web, our, our China focused internet strategy, um, are used as, as China proxies. But but the the, the funny thing is though, Pim, um, only four percent of the revenue generated by the companies that we hold within K Web are generated outside of China. Um, you compare that to the S and P 500, where over 20% of the U.S. companies held within the S&P 500 uh, come from outside of the United States. So, so it's interesting. If, if, you're, if you're selling your Alibaba because you're worried about a trade war, the reality is Alibaba has virtually no exposure to the United States. It's a domestically oriented company. It's, hard, uh, it's really hard to uh, understand that rationale. You know, what, one thing that I'm trying to understand right now is it seems quite clear uh, that perhaps there could be a more level playing field with China and the rest of the world. A lot of the world agrees with that, frankly. Uh, but what's unclear to me is how much are, is there concrete talking going on versus how much is this just sort of like a, you know, a one blow here, one blow there, chest pounding here and kind of like a, a drumbeat to something actually happening. Yeah, I think like, so one one thing that uh, I think the market you know didn't like to hear was was you know Larry Kudlow who threw <laughs> threw a life life preserver to markets on Wednesday uh, by coming out and saying oh they, you know this is a negotiation you know coming out and saying that there no no talk has taken place o over a trillion in global market capitalization has been lost 
um, over the last several weeks globally, um, and and it's, it's 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 a little disconcerting that that you know that the talks these negotiations haven't started. Um, you know, so that was so today, in other words, in the Bloomberg that was Television today, interview, he yeah. came out, and uh, I, I think that's accelerated uh, that you know this is this has serious implications, and you know I think you know I hope cooler heads prevail and, and discussion does pl- take place. Uh, there's great opportunities for both countries to enhance this relationship. But you got to get down and talk. Hopefully that, that takes place shortly. Brendan, what about smart investors? What are they doing? I want to note that you've described how the Lippo Group, uh, which is a big real estate company based in uh, Indonesia, uh, has been adding to their China stock holdings. Yeah, one of the things that we've seen continue to see that that is quite interesting. Over the last several weeks, we've seen increased within southbound connect trading, which has been closed due to tomb sweeping holiday. Um, Buying, and then more recently, we had uh, the Lippo Group. Who, you know, anyone who's traveled to Hong Kong, you see the big skyscrapers with with the family name. Um, so it is interesting that we're seeing buying on weakness from both mainland as well as now. In this case, a very very prestigious family in in Hong Kong. So, um, and and even even earlier this week, Pim, it was interesting. We actually saw northbound foreign buying on weakness. So, so I, I like to hope that institutional investors are keeping, um, you know, if people are willing to, to sell uh, based on emotions, um, and, you know, professional investors are going to buy those shares. Brendan, uh, real quick, if you could give a percent chance that we are going to escalate into some sort of trade war, what percent chance would you give it? I, I think on the talk, it's it's probably a hundred percent in terms of the reality of an actual trade war happening. A much much low low percentage. There's just too much at stake. Like twenty percent. I I would think you know I think Lisa you know no one wants to be known as orchestrating the Smoot Hawley of 2018, and that that is what people will be go down in history for if if this escalation actually takes place. Yeah. I don't think the reputation people have built successfully in business uh, are worth throwing away for for really just a you know a lot i mean there are yeah. very much grievances that should be uh addressed by by the china side around intellectual property at the same time they've made great strides in opening up yeah so ho- hopefully those cooler heads prevail brendan ahern thank you so much cio of crane shares So with today's declines, we have turned red for the year on the S&P 500. Uh, The Dow Jones also red for the year. Who is out there willing to buy? Well, perhaps we'll get our answer from Erin Brown. She is head of asset allocation at UBS Asset Management, overseeing uh, about $770 billion. It's based in New York. Erin, thank you so much for being here. Uh, So we have seen this weakness. Are you buying? Yeah, so we have the view that throughout the duration of this year, we expect that equities are going to end the year higher. So we're still expecting about mid-single digits earnings uh, or S&P returns this year and double-digit earnings growth. So we are buying into pockets of weakness. However, right now here, we've taken a little bit of a wait-and-see mode to see some of the trade tariff discussions come to a conclusion before we really start in enforce and start buying. Wait, this is important. In other words, even if you don't necessarily believe that there's going to be a full-blown escalation, it isn't worth it 
to you, it sounds like, if I'm interpreting this right, and correct me if I'm wrong, to step in here because that possibility is potentially highly damaging and could change your view. Yeah. So I think for now you're getting paid to wait, right? I don't think that there's a necessarily a need to be stepping in right here, right now and buying stocks. That said, on the margin, we're nibbling when we see real pockets of weakness in specific sectors or in specific you know, sort of areas of the market that we like. We actually think that given the declines, valuations look attractive, but you're also having a higher risk premium priced into stock. So the counterbalance of that right now means we're standing on the sidelines with some dry powder, getting ready to buy more. Some of the changes we have made of late, we are buying a little bit of EM um, because we think that EM has been hit, but actually has been performing pretty well, has actually held in there. And we think that the earnings trajectory and the structural underweight within emerging markets still supports an overweight to EM. So we're buying there, but we're also on the other side of that Doing some currency trades like buying the yen um, to support and to support sort of our our risk off positions and also being a little bit longer U.S. Treasury yields. So buying a little bit of equities, but also counterbalancing that with a little bit more defensive positioning in our FX and our rate books. I want to just continue on what you talked about having to do with currencies and get your thoughts on the dollar. Do you think that we're going to see increased dollar weakness? Throughout the duration of this year, absolutely. Our view is that the dollar will weaken versus the euro to about 130 by the end of the year. We expect that versus the yen, we expect dollar yen to end the year around 100. So throughout the duration of this year, we are expecting that the dollar will continue to weaken. Most of that is based on the fact that we think that the Fed is further ahead in terms of their rate trajectory path than either the ECB or the BOJ. And so we think as we continue throughout the duration of the year and we start to see interest rate differentials converge, that will drive the dollar weaker versus our DM counterparts. However, Versus emerging markets, we think that the emerging markets are, again, structurally underweight. And so we think that EM will also outperform the dollar. In the near term, we are running fairly neutral in terms of our overall dollar exposure. But we do expect that as we move into the second half of the year, we will start putting on fairly significant dollar underweights again. Um, I want to I just pick up on one thing that you said where you were saying, you know, Perhaps we're, we're taking a wait-and-see approach, but nibbling around the edges and sectors that we like. What sectors are those? And I'm thinking, hmm, is that tech? Are you out there buying Facebook when Facebook goes down? So we like tech as a sector right now. Um, we do think that the earnings fundamental picture for tech is still very strong. Really? And Are you going to be watching uh, Mark Zuckerberg next week? Absolutely. But I, <laughs> but, I, but I also think, you know, what's interesting about this is that you actually may see a comparative advantage for the larger tech com- the larger cap tech companies who are able to appropriately size their their staff in order to potentially deal with higher regulation so if you think about small cap tech they may not have the resources to appropriately put the governance and the compliance structures in place, similar to what we saw with the banking sector several years ago. Um, And so going forward, actually, these big tech companies actually have the capabilities to potentially, you know, sort of adapt themselves in order to deal with a more compliance or regulatory heavy industry. To come bigger. If you're if you're adding to let's say emerging market positions, if you are adding uh, at uh, whatever valuation you feel appropriate to technology holdings, what are you selling or what are you diminishing in the asset allocation model in order to bring up 
those portions of the portfolio. Right. So overall, we've decreased our equity weight somewhat, and that that's really broad sector equity weight. So if you think of just sort of our broad market beta to the S&P 500, um, we don't as an asset management firm, we and, and in the multi-asset space, we predominantly buy ETFs or futures or sectors. We don't buy you know, individual companies. Um, so that said, we're selling down some of our S&P weight. We've also un- started to sell down some of our European equity overweight, which we had been running overweight for the last six months. That hasn't performed as we would have expected as you started to see some of the economic data rolling over. So we've lightened our risk a little bit there. And then one of the most significant changes is we've also started to sell down some of our Japanese equity overweight as well. It's interesting, especially since you're going into the yen. Uh, One thing that we've heard from a lot of investors is that they've been increasing their allocation to treasuries, and and you said that you were as well, although not necessarily on the long end, but on the short end of the curve, basically, now that you're actually getting yield on two-year treasuries, it's a great time. Uh, Do you agree? I mean, is that sort of a great holding spot? So for for us, we actually think the longer end for asset managers is a better holding spot. And that's because, A, you get incremental yield, but also when you look at the stock bond correlation, it the 10-year yield oft, historically has offered a very good counterbalance to the equity you know, risk that you're holding in your portfolio. So as a diversifier of risk over the long to medium term, the 10-year bond actually in portfolios works very well to diversify out some of the equity risk. And so typically you see that as a, as a it minimizes the overall portfolio risk in our asset allocation models pretty significantly. Even though you've seen that, that stock bond correlation start to move less negative, it's still in negative territory. And it still is, I think, a very appropriate asset for diversified portfolio holdings. Just quickly, as an, as someone that's got a lot of experience in the world of hedge funds, I'm sure you noted the Pershing Square Capital and the redemptions there. Uh, any thoughts on what you can see for hedge funds this uh, this year? So I think for so what we've actually started to see is active management as a factor has started to do better. Um, we've been in you know sort of four to five years where active management has greatly underperformed passive management. As a result of that, you've seen hedge funds and active managers suffer pretty significantly. I think what you're starting to see now is that active managers with the right business model are now starting to do quite well. And you saw them actually outperform in the most recent period of volatility. Historically, during periods of higher volatility, active management outperforms. So we like active management here. Thanks very much for being with us. Aaron Brown is the head of asset allocation for UBS Asset Management, helping to manage more than $770 billion of customer assets. Since George Kurian became the president and chief executive officer of NetApp in mid-2015, this data storage company's stock has gained more than 116%. Uh, George Kurian joins us now, along with our own Anand Srinovsevin, who is a uh, senior semiconductor and hardware analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. George, I want to just start with you and ask, you know, can you give us just a short overview of what's happened at the company what the company is, and how it's transformed since you took office. We are a company that enables our customers to use data for business advantage. 
increasingly trends like the hybrid cloud or artificial intelligence and machine learning depend on sophisticated data management capabilities to allow businesses to operate efficiently and productively in service of their customers. And NetApp is the data authority for these trends. We have superior technology, a track record of working with the world's leading institutions, as well as increasingly uh, endorsed by the biggest hyperscaler cloud providers. So Anand uh, Srinivasan, I want to just uh, bring you in here. Can you give us sort of an overview of uh, where this data storage industry is right now? What are some, like, what's the biggest challenge right now for it? Uh, great. Thanks, Lisa. So one of the biggest trends in data storage overall, if you look at network storage um, systems, that market is shrinking. But one of the things that NetApp um, has done and transformed itself is it is the only company in our minds that has become relevant to the public cloud model. They're transforming themselves from a legacy network storage provider to a company that is cloud biased. Uh, increasingly software-based and increasingly new technology-based, away from spinning disks to more all flash arrays. So if you put all of those things together, this is a company that has pivoted itself uh, pretty aggressively uh, successfully over the past three years. And um, and you have to give credit where credit is due. George is uh, responsible for a substantial portion of that. George, maybe just delve a little bit into the actual technology, something called fabric-attached storage as well as uh, all-flash storage, and and maybe just explain it and offer it as a story so that people understand when they are using the data, either that their company is able to create internally or that they receive from their customer base. Companies want to aggregate large amounts of data to understand their customers better, to understand their own business performance better. And to do that, they connect different computing systems to common network-connected storage. Those network-connected storage systems were historically within the company's data center. What customers want to do now increasingly is to use storage that's available in the public cloud. And what we uniquely in the industry do is to be able to make all of those locations where people want to use data seamlessly integrated. We call that idea data fabric, and it's growing very quickly as a percentage of our business. You know, one of the things that's also impressive is the fact that this is a company that is uh, very differentiated versus legacy IT providers such as Dell, EMC, or uh, HP Enterprise. Perhaps, um, George, you could could sort of... um, hone in on sort of the the differences. Why is NetApp different? I think one of the unique things that we are focused on is being the world's best at the problem of data management, which is not only increasingly business critical, but also more complex. So we can partner effectively with the cloud providers. We can partner with software companies. We can partner with chip manufacturers to build the best solutions for our customers. And we are entirely focused on that problem. And that's why, as a percentage of our business, the new technologies, which we call strategic solutions, are now 70% of net product revenue and are growing 26% year on year. It represents the power of our new technology portfolio. How concerned are you about the protection of data against breaches or hacks or inappropriate usage, considering uh, how much focus there is on that these days? 
it's an absolutely important uh, challenge that we help our customers deal with. Data is the lifeblood of a digital organization. And being a steward of that is something that our customers take as a core part of their mission. We provide them with tools and technology that enables them to accomplish their mission. What's your biggest fear when it comes to uh, data security? I think it's malicious insiders that have access to data to support a business's mission now becoming uh, opposed to that mission, right? So it's very, very hard for companies to be able to protect their uh, resources from internal attack. And those internal attacks now take on state-sponsored agents, for example. And so we continue to work with the industry to build more and more capabilities to not only provide customers with ideas of who is accessing the data, but when and where they are accessing it from. They had their analyst day yesterday and they sent a very upbeat message, both in terms of uh, top line and bottom line growth. So in this era from a, uh, from a technology, legacy technology hardware perspective, where uh, trends are generally deflationary, this is a company that is going to grow uh, conservatively at the mid-single digit on the top line and earnings growth well above 15%. So I thought that was a great um, upbeat message um, that, uh, that uh, NetApp um, sent on its analyst day. Thank you. We feel bullish about our prospects. Yesterday, we talked about growth, top line growth in the mid-single digits, which represents both share gain in our existing markets at the expense of legacy competitors, as well as the addition of new markets like the cloud. It uh, reflects the discipline in our operating model, where we are raising our guidance for operating margin uh, from where it is today to 20 to 24% reflecting an increased focus on the best markets and an increasing contribution from software in our portfolio, and earnings leverage uh, by a big uh, commitment to capital returns through doubling our dividend and a new authorization for $4 billion in buyback. Anand Srinivasan, as our uh, senior semiconductor hardware analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, I keep hearing about how storage is a commodity. How does something like NetApp uh, evade the commodity trap? Uh, is it through their software, through the use of ONTAP? What you, makes it happen? You answered the question. Storage is a commodity, absolutely. So what value add can you provide on top of that storage system is what makes it differentiated, what makes it key, right? Anybody can sell you disk, anybody can sell you solid state arrays, but the value add comes from the software and Again, it's, it, it needs to be consistent, whether that storage is in-house or uh, in a public cloud or somewhere in between, uh, a composite of all of those. The software is what drives the architecture. All right, well done. Thanks very much, uh, gentlemen, for coming in. Anand Srinivasan is our senior semiconductor and hardware analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And our thanks also to George Kurian. He is the president and the chief executive of NetApp. Coming up on Bloomberg Markets, we're going to be talking about municipal bonds. We've got Joe Mysack, editor for the Municipal Bond Brief for Bloomberg Briefs. I'm Pim Fox, my co-host Lisa Abramowitz. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. 
I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.